0: Morning Church, my name is Sam, and I'm your scripture reader for today. We'll be reading from Romans chapter 1, verse 16 to 32. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as is written: the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks David and uh, Samuel for reading so well for us this morning. Uh, For those of you who are new here, my name is I'm the pastor here at One Covenant Church. We've been working our way through the book of Romans. So here we are now in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 32. Now before we get going, let me say that there are some hard things uh, in this passage and some things where uh, if you're a parent with young children, you may want to take some time to explain things further uh, i've discussed this with uh, cindy my wife and when i get to point number three on immorality uh, these are things that we are comfortable talking to our children with although we might need to process it further uh, but if you're here with young children and you wonder whether they're ready for this uh, when i get to point four, uh, three on immorality you may want to take them out to the corridor for a brief moment and then we can come back in again Uh, This is also God's word. God wants to guide us and direct us in the area of sex and sexuality. And it is holy, it is good, uh, it is for our flourishing. So let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Let's ask him to guide us and direct us as we read his word this morning. Father, we thank you that this too is your word. And this too is for our good. This too is for our flourishing. This too is to show us the kindness and the goodness of Jesus Christ. So draw near to us, Father, as we consider this passage of scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My friends, last week, uh, Joel opened up the book of Romans for us and he gave us an introduction from Romans chapter 1 all the way. Uh, verse 1 all the way to verse 17 and we saw in that introduction that the main theme of the book of Romans is God's good news the gospel of Jesus Christ that introduction culminates in verse 16 and 17 of verse 1 where Paul says look at your word look at the Word of God I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the gospel the righteousness of god is revealed from faith for faith or from faith from beginning to end as it is written that righteous shall live by faith in other words friends the gospel is the good news that god saves people not by the things that we do not by the merit of our lives but by faith in his son jesus christ and those who believe in his son he gives to them the free gift of righteousness. We are righteous in God's eyes, not by the works that we do, but by faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, this is a high and glorious statement. But what we find as we read on in the book of Romans is that from chapter 1 verse 18 all the way to chapter 3 verse 20, Paul then begins to explain in great detail the darkness of human sin. So, he's just told us about the great and glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. But very soon after that, he begins to tell us about the deep darkness of human sin. Now, why in the world does Paul do this? Someone once said, The darker the night, the brighter the stars. The darker the night, the brighter the stars. You see, friends, if we do not see the deep darkness of human sin, we will never fully embrace the brightness and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore, Paul paints in great detail for us the background to the gospel, the despair that we experience as sinful human beings. And he's doing that, he's painting this dark background so that we can see the brightness and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I need to warn you, friends, as we're stepping through this sermon, there might be points in the sermon that you feel like I need to walk out, it's too dark. But I want to say to you, friends, that at the end, we will see the brightness of the gospel of Jesus Christ shining through. The darker the night, the brighter the stars. This dark background is there so that we can see the beauty and the majesty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, if we do not know what we're saved from, we will not fully treasure the salvation that God has given us in the person of Jesus Christ. So my task today, Thankfully it's just Romans 1:18 to 32 and in this passage we will see four dark reasons why all of us every single one of us sitting here needs the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ indignation idolatry immorality and injustice indignation idolatry immorality and injustice you may like to refer to your bulletin on page 8 for the outline come with me to Romans chapter 1 verse 18. Romans 18 says this, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And in this verse, Paul gives us the first reason why we all really need the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first reason is God is angry. He's angry. Look specifically at verse 18. God is angry and ungodliness and unrighteousness of all humanity. No one here is spared from the anger of God in and of ourselves. You see, friends, ungodliness refers to our offenses against God. Unrighteousness refers to our offenses against one another. And God is angry at both. He's angry that we hurt him, and he's angry that we hurt one another. Now, friends, some of you sitting here, you're actually angry that God gets angry. You're morally outraged. That God gets morally outraged. Now, the reason why you're angry and you're morally outraged is because you care. You care about evil and justice and injustice and good and bad. You care. That's the reason why you feel anger. That's the reason why you feel moral outrage. Well, friends, the fact is, God gets angry and he's morally outraged for this very same reasons. He cares about good. He cares about evil. He cares about justice. He cares about injustice. He cares about right. He cares about wrong. It's actually a very good thing, friends, that God is a God of wrath. It's actually a very good thing, friends, that God actually gets angry. And a Croatian theologian, Miroslav Volf, he once said this, My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, The region which I came from, according to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages, my cities were destroyed. My people were shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine a God who does not get angry. I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath. But I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. Voss says this, God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because He is love. John Stott, the Anglican clergyman, once said this, the opposite of wrath is not love. The opposite of wrath is neutrality, is moral indifference. The reason why God is angry at human sin and hurt and suffering is precisely because He is a God of love. The wrath of God is a good thing because it tells us that God really is good. He is morally outraged at ungodliness and unrighteousness. He cares. He cares about justice and injustice, good and evil. The first reason... Why we really need the gospel is because God is angry. He's angry at our ungodliness and he is angry at our unrighteousness. Now, Paul will go on to show us how all of us express this ungodliness and unrighteousness in our lives. Look at verse 18 again. Paul says here that in our ungodliness and in our unrighteousness, all of us suppress the truth. We live in denial of what we already know to be true. We live in denial of what we know to be true of God. Now, verse 19 and 20 says this, What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." What Paul is saying is by looking at creation the world that God has made all of us every single human being on planet earth knows God in a way that leaves us verse 20 without excuse now Dr. Francis Collins who was the former head of the human genome project a scientist a renowned scientist once said this I see DNA oxide ribonucleic acid as God's language And the elegance and complexity of our own bodies and the rest of nature as a reflection of God's plan by investigating God's majestic and awesome creation science can actually be a means of worship you see friends all of us as we look at DNA and as we look at creation should draw the same conclusion because of the beauty and the majesty and the complexity of creation there must be a creator and he must be powerful He must be divine. But we don't all draw this conclusion. And what Paul is saying is we don't draw this conclusion not because we don't know that it is true, but we don't want it to be true. We live in denial. We suppress the truth. And the reason we suppress the truth about the reality of the God that we actually know deep in our hearts is because we know that if we acknowledge that there is a God, and this is what He is like, and this is who He is, our lives will need to change. And we're not willing and ready for our lives to change. I heard a story once. Uh, I think it was relayed by another pastor. And uh, he, he tells a, a story of a friend of his who is a, a youth pastor. And this is in America and uh, you know he'll pastor some of these youth and after a while they'll go away to college and some of them after first or second year in university they'll come back home and they'll sit down to him and now they start having all kind of philosophical objections to the existence of God you know he bring up all kinds of arguments against why God no longer exists and these are children that grew up in the church now he'll listen he'll nod he'll answer one or two questions but at some point he'll ask them so tell me who are you sleeping with who are you sleeping with and they'll get really shocked and stunned as if this was a prophet speaking to them and most of the time he's right they've made certain moral choices in college that make it inconvenient to believe in the god that they know to be true that they know really is there so friends god is really there he's revealed himself in creation we don't know him or acknowledge him not because that's not true or he hasn't made it clear enough the fact is we don't want our lives to change but friends what we'll see in the rest of this passage is that the change that God calls us to is always good for us it's always good for us and we'll understand this by seeing how this suppression of the truth works its way out in idolatry Now, idolatry, our second point, is to worship something other than God as if it is God. So come with me to verse 21. It says here, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verses 22 and 23, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now here, the word fools does not mean intellectual foolishness. It's a moral foolishness. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So instead of worshipping the God that they really know in their hearts, they turn their hearts to worship idols, to worship things that they make with their own hands. If we suppress the truth of God, we will worship idols. Now some of you will say, you know, I, I don't do this. I don't make idols and figurines and bow down to them. Well, that's because, friends, our idols are far more sophisticated. You see, idols are not just things that we bow down to physically. In Ezekiel 14, God calls out the elders of Israel and say that you have bowed down to your idols. You have taken idols into your hearts. John Calvin calls our hearts a factory of idols. You see, an idol is anything that you go to and you trust for what only God can give you. An idol is anything you trust in that isn't God to give you only what God can give you. So you do find yourself saying, even though you don't bow down to figures, if I only had that amount of money in the bank, if I only had that relationship, or that sexual experience, or that body, or that achievement, I'll be safe. I'll be secure. I'll be significant. I'll be special. That, my friends, is your idol. That's a work of your hands that you are actually assigning transcendent qualities to. That is your idol. Now, very interesting is, I was studying for this passage. I found out that the great reformer, Martin Luther, he actually points out that the fact that people worship idols shows that deep inside, they really do know God. This is what he says. They revere them as eternal and almighty, or at least strong enough, to help them this demonstrates that there was in their hearts the knowledge of a divine sovereign being do you see what Martin Luther is saying here you may say I don't believe in God I believe only in science but you're looking at things outside of yourself and you're assigning in material things and you're assigning transcendent qualities to these things you're giving godlike qualities to these things and the fact that you do that shows that in the deepest recesses of your heart, you really do know God. You really do recognize that there is a divine being that can help you, that is eternal, that is almighty. And what you need to do is follow the trail of the longing of your heart and let it lead you to that true God. St. Augustine says when we worship idols, we experience disordered loves. Now what does he mean by that? You see, friends, if God is not the supreme and greatest affection of your heart, something else will take that place. It could be a good thing, but it becomes an ultimate thing. And when it becomes an ultimate thing, it takes up an inordinate place in your heart and in your life. And that, friends, is idolatry. Now, there are some couples in our church, uh, very interestingly, they come from different church backgrounds, and they're trying to work out, uh, how to get married and you know, they're so diligent because one of the things they want to resolve is are we on the same page uh, in, th- in terms of theology? You know, do we understand the same things? So someone could come from a Baptist church another one from a Presbyterian church so they have to resolve the issue of infant baptism or adult baptism some could come from a charismatic church and another one from a church more like ours and they have to resolve that uh, I mean some are talking about uh, you know, views of the last things and all these kind of things and you know they come to our church And one of the things I say to them is, um, focus on the things that you have in common before you start focusing on the things that you disagree on. I say, if you don't focus on the gospel and the person and work of Jesus Christ, all these other things, and you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the matter of first importance is the gospel, meaning that there are matters of second, third, and fourth importance. If you don't place what you have in common at the center of heart and the heart of your relationship, All of these secondary things will take an inordinate place in your life and in your relationship. But if you put Jesus, his person, and work at the center, then these things are still important. You still have to figure out, do we baptize our kids, do we not? I would say to you, do. Uh, But you'll work it out in a way that is appropriate, that is ordinate. You'll not get too heated about these discussions in matters of spiritual gifts and other things like that. And similarly for our lives, friends, if the person and work of Jesus Christ is not at the center and heart of who we are, if the person of God is not at the center and heart of who we are, other things will come and fill that vacuum and they will become inordinately important to us. And one of those things is actually a great gift that God has given to us. And that is the gift of sex. I'm going to go to my third point now. So parents with young children... Uh, if you want to just excuse yourself for about five minutes, uh, you're welcome to do so. Uh, but this is actually a good part here. Okay. You see, friends, sex is a beautiful God, that, a gift that God has given to us. He's given to humanity. But it's a gift, it's not a need. It's a gift of God, meaning that it was never meant to fully satisfy us, because only God can fully satisfy us. But friends, when your supreme love in life is not God, it's something else, sex, because it is so powerful and so beautiful, it begins to take up an inordinate place in our lives. It makes you say, I must have it at all cost if I'm to be safe, significant, and secure, and satisfied in life. Sex becomes a need. It's no longer just a gift from a good and almighty god but the problem is this sex was never meant to fully satisfy us so we give ourselves to sexual experiences and we find that these sexual experiences fall short of our expectation to fully satisfy our hearts so what do we do we go further and further and further and we go beyond the bounds of safety for sex you see friends because sex is such a beautiful and powerful gift God wants us to be safe as we handle this gift. It's almost like He's given us kryptonite. Okay, not, not a very good illustration. Uh, nu- something powerful, okay? Nuclear material, yeah. What, what? Fire. is Fire. a good one. Thank you, brother. I should get you to preach this sermon instead. I'm getting nervous now. Fire. Fire is a beautiful gift, but if it's not used within certain boundaries, it will burn you. Correct, brother? Burn you. Amen. Okay. Just like sex. That's why Paul says here in Romans 1.24, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. and verse 26, gave them up to dishonorable passions. These are people, because of our idolatry, taking sex beyond the bounds of safety that God has set for us. Now, what are these safety bounds that God has set for sex? Well, Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Marriage, that is the safe boundary that God has created for sex to take place in a powerful and beautiful way that does not burn us. Now Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 19 verse 4 and 5, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them? male and female and said therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh in other words the bible and jesus himself defines marriage as between one man and one woman and any kind of sexual activity outside the safe bounds of marriage between one man and one woman whether heterosexual or homosexual will actually hurt the ones who are engaging in this sexual activity now in Romans 124 Paul calls these boundaries or stepping out of these boundaries impurity and the dishonoring of bodies in verse 26 he speaks more specifically about homosexual acts women exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and men verse 27 giving up the natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, committing shameless acts with men, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Any kind of sexual activity, whether homosexual or heterosexual, outside the bounds of safety that God has set, marriage between one man and one woman is sinful in God's eyes, and ultimately detrimental and hurtful to the ones who engage in it. Now, friends, I have some good friends who have much more liberal attitudes to sex than I do. They're friends. You know, you can be friends with people that you disagree with, uh, even vehemently. So people that I quote here don't, don't think that I completely agree with them. They're good friends, but I don't necessarily agree with their attitudes. What I realize in my conversations with them is no matter how liberal or progressive your views of sex are, you always have boundaries. You always have a boundary that you say, I will not cross that bound. It could be consent. It could be cheating. Those are boundaries that even my very progressive and liberal friends say, I'm not going to cross that line because it is, they might not use the word immoral, but to them, it is immoral. It crosses a bound. They may not call it impure or unnatural or shameless like the Bible does, but it's essentially that to them. It is immoral now friends for those of us who have experienced the love of God in Christ we are convinced that he loves us more than we love ourselves we are convinced that he's more committed to us than we're committed to ourselves and we are convinced that he's infinitely wiser than we are and so we know that he wants us to be safe we know that he wants us to flourish and we leave the boundaries To him, we allow him to set the boundaries for our lives because we know that his intention for us is good. And that boundary, friends, is marriage between one man and one woman. When that happens, friends, when God is our supreme love, sex finds its rightful place in our lives. It becomes a gift and not a need. Now, I have a friend who is a Catholic priest, and uh, we were having coffee one day, And he said to me, Z, you know, I don't understand why so many same-sex attracted Christians are coming to me to seek advice. So they're not coming to people like me, you know, pastors. Uh, They're going to a a Catholic priest, you know. And I said to him, maybe it's because you have something that I don't have. He said, what's that? He says, you're able to show them that it's possible to live a full and fulfilling life without sex. And marriage now let me make it clear i he's a friend of mine but it's not i'm not catholic okay but he's a good friend he's able to show something to them that that i can't now i studied in england many years ago and i realized that it's different from singapore but in england there's much more of a tradition even in anglican or presbyterian circles or or like Reformed circles not catholic circles of men who choose to decide to remain single so that they can be wholly given over to God and the service of God. So you know names like John Stott or Dick Lucas or Sam Aubrey or Vaughn Roberts. These are men that have chosen to stay celibate because they want to give their hearts to something higher. These are men who see Christ and God as the supreme love and so sex becomes a gift But not a need and they're able to live a full and fulfilling life even without sex my friend these verses are hard so let me just take a bit more time to speak to three different groups of people as I've been praying about it like to talk to three different groups of people Now, some of you here may have been victims of sexual assault I want to say to you friends These verses are not here to make you feel dirty and guilty. These verses are here to tell you that what happened to you was not only wrong, it was evil. And these verses are here to tell you that God is angry at what happened to you. And you should be angry too. And these verses are telling you that you will have justice whether in this life or the next. It's not here to make you feel dirty or guilty, friend. God is near. God is with you. God is near. A second group of people, some of you experience same-sex attraction, but you're struggling to be pure in God's eyes. Can I say to you, friends, that these verses don't condemn you. They commend you. Because you have chosen Jesus over and above the longings of sex. And imperfect as we are as a church, I pray that we will be a place where you will experience love and support in your struggles. Just as you have given us your love and your support in our struggles. And I say to you that we are proud to call you brothers and sisters in Christ, and you are more than welcome here. Let's press on towards holiness together, supporting one another with love and grace, and sometimes correction, because we all need to grow in holiness. Number three, some of you are or have had sex outside of the boundaries of marriage. You slept with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, whether it's a heterosexual or homosexual, outside the bounds of marriage. Some of you are watching pornography. Some of you are masturbating to pornography. And I say, friends, very gently, that these things are very clearly outside the bounds of safety. And you're not just hurting yourself, you're hurting the people that you're engaging. In these acts, with. Now, these verses are also telling us the reason why the darkness of human sin is being painted is because we need to see the beauty of the gospel, which means the gospel is also available to you. And though it might be hard, there is a way for us to stop hurting ourselves and stop hurting the people that we're engaging in these acts with. It will be difficult, it will be painful, but we can stop. We can't say no. And that's why we need a community. And I pray we'll become that kind of a church where there's freedom and safety and gospel grace for us to confess these sins and not to be judged for these sins, but to be a conduit for God's grace to come and heal us and change us. Because all of us, friends, all of us are sexual sinners to a greater or lesser degree. And we all need each other to grow in the holiness And the righteousness that God has for us friends I want to put things in perspective so the children can come back in oh no one left it's okay is that okay guys I know a bit intense today Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to the gospel soon as you read the passage here you realize that sexual immorality is only one of two expressions of idolatry and the second expression In some ways, it's more subtle, but more serious, and it's the issue of injustice. Now, injustice is how we treat other people, treating people in a way that they should not be treated. So come with me to Romans chapter 1, verse 28. It says here, God gave them up to a debased mind. Now, that word debased, if you look at the King James Version, it says God gave them up to a reprobate mind. And then in verses 29 to 31, he gives us a list of what a reprobate mind looks like. 29 to 31. Now, I don't have time to explain every single thing here. But let me pick out a few things that is condemned here as an outworking of a reprobate or a debased mind. Look at verse 29 and 30. Envy, strife, maliciousness. There are gossips slanderous and boastful verse 31 they are heartless and they are ruthless friends can i just bear my heart to you some of the most malicious gossipy slanderous and boastful things take place in the christian church in the name of christ And you know what God says here? Verse 32, those who practice such things deserve to die. So Christian, you're gossiping, you're slandering, you're saying things to people about someone that you would never say to their face, and yet at the same time on Facebook, you're railing against the homosexual lobby. Friends, look at verse 32 those who practice such things deserve did i so yes friends your sexually immoral friend needs to repent but you need to repent too of your gossip and of your slander because this too is an outworking of idolatry If God is not central and supreme in your heart, if His grace is not melting you with love, of course you will look at others and you will condemn them instead of loving them. The root is the same, friends, of immorality or injustice. It's the idolatry that we entertain in our hearts. Friends, the sky of our human sin is indeed very dark. But, friends, that is when the gospel shines brightest. As you look at the passage as a whole, did you notice that there are three times that Paul says we've exchanged something good for something evil? In verse 23, we've exchanged the glory of God for immortal, of the immortal God for images. In verse 25, we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. In verse 26, we've exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And as a result of that, God in his wrath has given us up, it says three times, verse 24, he's given us up in the lust of our hearts. Verse 26, he's given us up to the dishonorable passions. And verse 28, he's given us up to a debased mind. It's almost like God is saying, if that is the path you are choosing, I'm giving you your choice. And yet, friends, in spite of all that we have done, all of the grave exchanges it says in romans 8 32 that god gave up his son for us all we've exchanged god for images we have refused to love him supremely but in his supreme love he has given up his son for us he has exchanged jesus for us jesus bore the wrath of god on our behalf so that those of us who have embraced him by faith will only be left with the love and mercy and grace of god friends the darker the night the brighter the stars when you acknowledge the darkness of the sin that's in your heart That is the place where you experience the full brightness of gospel grace. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that the way that you have ordered us is to move us from this word to the Holy Communion. Because in the Holy Communion, you are once again reminded that Jesus bore the full wrath of God on our behalf. So that we can experience your full forgiveness and your full acceptance and communion and so father in this nexus between hearing your word and coming to communion i pray you work within our hearts you help us to come to a place of honesty with about where we're at to repent deeply not just of our immorality but of our injustice not just of the things that we've done in the body but things that we have done in our speech and in our hearts against others Help us to know that you paint this dark backdrop only so we can see the brightness and the beauty of grace. And help us today in the Holy Communion to see the gospel, the glorious grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, shining through, healing our hearts,
0: and helping us become holy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.